You may be seated, and as you are doing that, take your copy of God's Word, and let's go to Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, and uh, we're going to be reading this morning, actually this is the wrong text. Romans 5, we're going to be beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The word of the Lord. All right, so as you guys know, we are journeying through the book of Romans, and um, Romans is kind of the Apostle Paul's master theological treatise. Um, his purpose in writing, though, was not to like delve deeply into every conceivable theological issue facing the church, but instead, primarily to clearly present the gospel. Paul said back in chapter 1, I have intended to come to you. He's writing to the church in Rome, both Jews and Gentiles. He said, I, I long to come to you. I've tried to make it there. I haven't made it yet. But I long to come to you so that I might preach the gospel to you, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he said, because it is the power of God to save all who believe. Now notice he didn't say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's just the best news I've ever heard, or I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's just the best decision I've ever made and my life is better. No, he said, listen, the gospel is God's work. It is God's power to save all who believe. And so to that end, here is what he has presented to us thus far. If he is seeking to clearly present the gospel, here is what he has presented to us thus far. First, God is holy and God is diametrically opposed to sin. Secondly, from the beginning of time, however, mankind has been disobedient to God, and so God has given mankind over to his sin. Next, God's wrath as a result of that is being poured out against all ungodliness. That's not something that will happen one day. Paul, I think, presents the idea that that's something that has happened, that is happening, and will happen in the future. 
Next, God will ultimately judge all people based on their works. If you are a Jew, he says, it's not going to matter if you've tried to follow the law or if you've been circumcised. Those things cannot save you from God's wrath. So Paul's case is basically that God's wrath is being seen even now, but there is ultimately going to come a judgment day when God will bring everybody before him. Next, sin is not a problem that only some people struggle with. Instead, he says, all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. He quotes David, King David, the psalmist, in those words. Next, he says that God's righteousness is seen, however, in that humans can be justified or can be made righteous, not through their own work or not through earning something, but they can be justified by God's grace alone. And that's something that's given to us freely. It is a gift, Paul says. It cannot be earned. Next, being justified by God, being made righteous before God, means that we are saved from His wrath. It means that we are removed from kind of this curse that is on us. Next, the gift of grace is accessed through faith in Christ. And it is a response of obedience based on evidence. Don't forget that. Hold on to that notion that faith is a response of obedience based on evidence. So what we said last week, it's not just some wild theory that some people have had. It's not like a good guess Faith is a response of obedience based on evidence. Faith is also not just a cognitive thing. Faith also involves action. We'll see more about that today. Next, Paul says the story of Abraham shows us that faith has always been the way that mankind has been justified before God. This is what we looked at last week in chapter 4. And then finally, Jesus died so that you might be reconciled to God and experience the justification that comes through faith. So this is what Paul has presented to us thus far. We are all sinners. None of us are capable of saving ourselves. None of us are capable of earning our way into righteousness or earning our way into salvation. Instead, justification, the salvation that comes to us, comes only through the person and work of Christ. We access that through faith. It is given to us freely as a gift and because of that gift, the wrath that has been on our lives is removed. So this is not only good news, like it's incredible news. It's the best news that any of us could hear. If you view yourself as someone who is in need of a Savior, and if you grasp the depth or the gravity of the fact that you are incapable of saving yourself, then to hear this kind of news is truly earth-shattering. It's life-changing. Like it, it should not only just change the way that you think or see the world, it should truly change everything about your life. Look with me, uh, starting at the beginning of chapter 5, because this is kind of Paul's uh, summation statement of all he has talked about thus far. Notice it begins with the word therefore, meaning based on everything that's come before this in the preceding four chapters, therefore, verse 1, since we have been justified by faith, we now have peace with God. Now, many of us may not have thought of ourselves as being like at war with God beforehand, Right? We're just doing what we wanted. You may not think of your lost friends or family members at, as being like at war with God, but yet that's the language that Paul uses here. It is this language of battle or warfare, war and peace, uh, being enemies of God. These are all words that he's thrown out here in today's text. 
Secondly, verse 2, through him we have also obtained access, there's that word access by faith, into this grace in which we stand. And now we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. He says not only that, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So the justification that we have received by faith in Christ has created peace where there was no peace between us and God, and it changes the way that we live and the way that we approach life. I want to look at two things in particular that Paul says in the text that I just read. First of all, he says that because of all of this, one, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, and then secondly, he says we rejoice in our sufferings. So let's start with that first one, rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. Well, what in the world does that mean? What in the world does that mean? What does it even mean to rejoice? What does it mean to rejoice? If you are rejoicing, what are you, what are you doing? I think most of the time we would define that word as something like exuberant celebration or, or like, like flagrant external joy, that, that somehow I am like emoting or celebrating something that is incredible. It is like a display of joy. When we consider what Christ has done for us, it makes a lot of sense that, that we would respond in that way, right? But here's what's interesting. In reality, the Greek word that is translated rejoice, it has an interesting bent. That word, and I'm sure this, this is a hard one, kahamai, kahamai. There's like a <clears throat> in there when you, when you say it. I can't do it well, but it's kahamai. And it literally means to hold one's head up high. In fact, the word is probably derived from the Greek word that means neck. It, like your neck. It, it's like to hold your neck straight. This is the word that we translate as the word rejoice. So, so what does is, what is holding your head high or holding your neck straight have to do with rejoicing? It's a little different than like joyful celebration or like being in this perpetual state of excitement. Have you ever encountered those Christians who just feel like to be a Christ follower means like we just have to constantly be excited about everything, no matter what's going on? But really, when we get when we dig into this and when we dig into the original language, what Paul is really saying here is that this is about this like deeply embedded state of confidence that we can walk through life securely with our heads held high. That's what rejoicing is based on what Christ has done for us. Remember, therefore, everything he's talked about up to this point, none of you were able of saving yourselves. I wasn't able of saving myself. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, and yet this incredible gift has been given to us. Therefore, hold your head up high. Like walk in confidence because God's righteousness is seen in this, in what he has done for us through Christ. The fact that God is good is seen in what he has done for us through Christ. So walk confidently 
through this life. That's what rejoicing is. It helps us understand also that definition helps us understand the second way that Paul says the gospel changes our life. He says, rejoice in your suffering as well. Yes, like have confidence in the glory of God and the hope of the glory of God, but also have confidence in the face of your sufferings. So, so like we've said, that doesn't necessarily mean that we are joyfully excited or celebratory in the midst of suffering. Um, some of us have maybe been in those environments before where it's like we have to put on this air of everything's fine, even when things are not fine. Or, or I'm excited about the gospel, I'm excited about Jesus, even when crappy things are going on. And, and, and that's not, I would say, that's not like a purely biblical attitude. Because one of the things we see in the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms, is the use of lament. We've talked about this a little bit in the past, but one form of the Psalms is, is a form called lament, which is literally going, God, what are you doing? Where, like, where are you? Do you understand what's going on in my life? Like, do you understand the suffering I'm going through? Like, do you see what's happening? My enemies are surrounding me. God, what are you doing? God, when are you going to come through for me? Like, so we see that in the midst of, like, faith in the Lord. We see it in the life of King David. So this notion that somehow we have to, like, put on this air of joy and celebration and, and happiness and, like, bubbliness even in the midst of bad stuff, like it's not really a biblical perspective. The biblical perspective is this. No matter what's happening with your emotions, we can have confidence that God is good and that the promise of the gospel is secure, right? Because God's righteousness is seen in what he has done for us through Christ. Remember, faith is a response to evidence what we said last week is that the evidence that we're placing our faith in is an empty tomb, right? It's the fact that Jesus did not stay dead, but is alive. So Christians, like we don't have to have this like self-punishing thing, this self-punishing attitude, or this like, thank you, sir, may I have another approach to God, right? Some people go to that end of the spectrum as well, that in order for me to like really like feel my wretchedness, like I need to like wallow in punishment. I, I like I'm a bad boy or girl and I need to be punished by God. And that's not what Paul is saying either. He's saying hard stuff's going to come in your life. Trials are going to come in your life, right? But we can have confidence because of who Christ is and what he has done. Now, we've spent the last several months in the midst of a difficult season, and, and some of us can read some of this stuff, and we can come away with the notion that if I ever deal with fear or worry or anxiety or any of that kind of stuff, then, then does that mean that I don't have faith? Does that mean I'm not a Christian? Like, if I feel worried or if I feel doubt or any of those things, like, is that like a symptom of a lack of faith in my life? And, and first of all, no, but let me respond to that in two ways. First of all, experiencing fear or worry or anxiety is not in and of itself a symptom of a lack of faith. Everybody experiences those things, right? Do you, do you think that Abraham didn't experience some level of fear like when he was leaving his home and going to a place he had never been to before, or some level of like, is, you know, is this really what we need to be doing? Or like, is, is this, 
Like, what's going to happen here? Abraham goes out into battle. He wasn't like a warrior. He wasn't a general. Like, do you think he didn't feel some level of, is God going to come through? You know, how's this going to happen? Those things are common to us, guys, and they're not symptoms of a lack of faith. A better indicator in your life, a better indicator of a lack of faith is a complete unwillingness to be obedient to God, right? Right? It's not just fear, it's not just worry, it's not just doubt, it's not those things. A better indicator of a symptom of a lack of faith is, am I completely unwilling to be obedient to God? Remember we said that faith is a response of obedience based on evidence. So a better question is, does my faith lead me to desire to push through fear, worry, doubt, anxiety, etc.? And if so... Right? If my faith is leading me to push through hard stuff because I'm confident in what Christ has done for me, if it's leading me to push through hard stuff, then a beautiful thing, Paul says, is happening within me, happening within you, and that is that you are becoming more like Jesus. Right? When, when our faith leads us to push through suffering, fear, worry, anxiety, then something beautiful is happening inside of us. The, the like, fancy theological word is sanctification, right? That we are being progressively conformed to the image of Christ. And that's not something that comes about in our lives simply because we sat in enough BSF classes or because we like, did uh, you know, the navigator study over and over again or whatever, right? It's not just about taking in more knowledge Right? It's not about going to seminary or any of those kinds of things. It's all about what the Spirit is doing within you. It's, it's another thing that God is doing. Right, It's not just something you are doing. It's something He is doing progressively within you. And, and so this is exactly what Paul was talking about when he said, suffering produces endurance. By the way, endurance is seen throughout the New Testament as the mark of true faith. Endurance, long-suffering, steadfastness, these are all words that are used in the New Testament. But it is like consistently seen as the mark of a true believer. In the midst of whatever's going on, whether it's good or bad, doesn't matter. Like good stuff can be just as like devastating to, to one following Christ as well. Like if everything's great, if I have no needs, what need do I have of Christ? Right? So, so in, in a strange way, that can be a form of kind of spiritual suffering as well. But what Paul says is that those things produce endurance when us, in us. When in confidence we press through the hard stuff, like that's real faith at work. You might not be doing everything perfectly, but that's not what's being put on you. Remember, we're not earning anything on our own. We're not achieving anything on our own. So suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, which seems like kind of a nebulous thing. We'll talk about that more in a minute. Character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame because, Paul says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So that's describing the process of sanctification because suffering takes on a variety of forms. Suffering isn't just pain and agony. Suffering can be loss and mourning. On, on some level, suffering can be anything in your life that isn't happening in the way you want it to happen, 
or like going the way you want it to go. Like, I think there are all kinds of levels to suffering, distress, hardship, going without. This is all suffering. And, and while you certainly encounter those Christians who have been in such a dark place in their life, that they meet Jesus and they're like more than happy to leave that former life behind and like totally, like just seemingly very quickly become a completely different person. The reality is that for most of us, we love our sin. We love our sin. And even though we love Christ and even though we have faith in Christ, it is hard and it is a form of suffering to pull away from the things of this world. I saw recently that uh, Tim Keller, who is a pastor and theologian and somebody who's been influential, uh, his writing has been influential for me. I, I saw recently he has cancer. And um, man, he put out a statement about this. And he said something that, I just, that just seemed like ridiculous to me. And not at all the thing I would be thinking if I were in his shoes. And what he said was, I am so thankful for this opportunity to wean myself off the joys of this world. Wow. Like, can you imagine finding out that you have cancer and thinking, what an incredible opportunity for me to prepare my heart for what is to come? Like, that's not, that's not how most of us think, Right? What a great opportunity to wean myself off the joys of this world. That was encouraging to me, right? This is, this is somebody who's way down the road of faith, right? That we can look to and go, man, that's kind of what it looks like maybe to suffer well and to endure in the midst of suffering. So if you say, I have faith in Christ, but I am in no way willing to endure suffering for His sake... Well, then that just doesn't compute. I have faith in Christ, like he's done all of these incredible things for me, but I'm in no way willing to endure anything for his sake. Well, those two things don't dovetail. They don't go together. That's what James means when he said that faith without works is dead, right? This famous statement of the brother of Jesus, faith without works is dead. If your faith doesn't lead you to obedience to Christ, then it isn't faith. Right? If there is an action associated with your faith, then it isn't faith. This is why some people prefer the word allegiance or faithfulness when talking about faith. It, it kind of gets more in kind of our modern language, maybe gets more to the heart of what we're really talking about here. Faith is not just a cognitive endeavor. Faith is not just something I believe or I say I believe. Faith is a belief that results ultimately in action. So, so if I say, for example, that I have full faith that this chair can hold my weight, but I refuse to stand in it because really deep down I don't think it can, right? Then that isn't real faith. Like I can say I have faith all day long, but until I like press through and actually stand in the chair, then I'm not in any way following the faith that I say that I have. Right? I'm not pressing on in the faith that I say that I have. So faith is not just a cognitive endeavor. Faith is not just something that I espouse. Faith is action based on what I say. Right? And that's something that's really challenging for many of us. Paul says the more that we press on in obedience in the face of suffering, the more we develop that faith muscle and the more our character changes. And that word character is another interesting word as well. I read that this week and I thought, man, what, in, what is character, really? 
Like, what is that? It seems like this very kind of up-in-the-air type thing. It might mean one thing to you, one thing to you, something different to me. What is character? The context in the Greek is that character, listen, is the result of something that has been tested and proven. The, the end result of something that has been tested and proven is character. Another way to think of this is that old saying that character is who you are when no one else is watching. Have you ever heard that? Character is who you are when no one else is watching. So because of our sin nature, our, our, like our natural disposition is to be more hypocritical. Or in other words, our natural disposition is for there to be some level of disconnect between what we say and what we do, or who we claim to be and who we actually are. For the person of faith, though, suffering actually serves to make you more humble and real. It closes the gap between who you say you are and who you actually are. So that's what Paul's saying here, right? Suffering, when you press through suffering and faith, it's producing endurance. Endurance is producing character. So as you press through in faith, confidence in Christ, the hard stuff of life, what is being produced in you is character, meaning you are becoming a less hypocritical person. The gap between who you say you are and who you actually are is, is being lessened as you pr press through suffering in faith. Look at verse 6. So based on that, Paul says, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. And what he means by that is like a morally upright person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. So a good person would be somebody who has like done good things. Not just somebody who has high moral values, but somebody who has done good works. He says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How do we know that God loves us? How do we know that he is good? It's really simple. While we were enemies of God... He sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. Verse 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more are we going to be saved from the wrath of God. Like we have been made righteous before Him. That's kind of step one. So step two is, so ultimately we're going to be completely saved from all of this wrath that's being poured out and has been poured out and will be poured out. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice. There's that word again. We also have confidence in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconcil reconciliation. So it wasn't necessary for you or I to have achieved a state of impeccable character in order for Christ to die for you. No, to the contrary, when you had no character, right? When there was this great gap between who you claimed to be and who you actually were, or the things you said you believed and the things you actually did, even in the midst of that, Christ died for you and for me. And whether you knew it or not, in that state, 
What Paul says is you are an enemy of his. I mean, it's kind of this, if you're not with him, you're against him type thing. That's the case that the scriptures present. And Paul says, again, this is how we know that God is righteous or good. It's not hypothesis. We know it. We know it because of Christ and what he has done. Remember, faith is what? It is a response of obedience based on evidence. And the evidence we have that God is good, and, and uh, contrary to God is capricious and arbitrary, right? That's not what he is. We know he is good because while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. In fact, you know what God has? God has character. God has character. Because what does he say to us through Christ? He says, love your enemies. And what did he show us through Christ? He showed us love of enemy. While we were against him, while we were his enemies, he died for us. The very things that Jesus said, he did, right? There wasn't this wide gap between who he claimed to be and who he actually was. And notice the people that he had the biggest issue with during his time on earth. It was the Pharisees. Why did he struggle with them? Because they were hypocrites. Because there was this huge margin, this huge gap between what they claimed and what they did. So Jesus' words and actions line up. Paul's saying not only is he good and trustworthy, he has done something for us that most humans would never even consider. Doing for even the best human beings, right? Who's going to die for Mother Teresa? Somebody might but they're going to have to think about it long and hard first. He says practically no one's going to die for a righteous person, a morally upright person. Maybe somebody might die for a good person. But the point is that the chances of this happening are really slim. Christ's love, however, is seen in that when we were neither righteous nor good. He died for us. By the way, this morning, and this is just an aside, this text should point us to the reason why something like slavery is so repugnant and so counter to the gospel, because ultimately what this is presenting us with is this case that we all lived under the oppression of sin, and what Christ has ultimately come to do for us is to free us from the oppression of sin, and so the notion that we would ever hold another person under some form of oppression is not only just kind of morally wrong, but it's completely counter to the message of the gospel and the people that the gospel should be shaping us to be. Does that make sense? So, so it's not just, a, just from a human rights standpoint or from like kind of a secular standpoint that it's something that's wrong and not good, but from a true like biblically-centered, gospel-centered point of view, if we understand what Christ has done for us, and if we are then sent to love others in the way that He has loved us, and to do for others what He has done for us, then the gospel shows us how to live. All right, guys, I want to leave you this morning with a rereading of this whole text, but I want to read it from Eugene Peterson's paraphrase the message because I, I love what he does with the text here and and I think it's just going to like kind of drive home things that we know to be true but things that we all struggle to rest in because that's ultimately our goal our goal is to be able to have such 
confidence, such rejoicing in the hope of God, such rejoicing even in the face of our sufferings, that while we may not be ecstatic and excited and, you know, in the midst of all of that, we can endure and press on and move forward. And so I want to invite you this morning to close your eyes with me. I want you to meditate on these words. I want you to allow this text to just kind of wash over you this morning. By entering through faith into what God has always wanted to do for us. Set us right with Him. Make us fit for Him. We have it all together with God because of our Master, Jesus. And that's not all. We throw open our doors to God and discover at the same moment He has already thrown open His door to us. We find ourselves standing where we always hoped we might stand, out in the wide open spaces of God's grace and glory, standing tall and shouting our praise. There's more to come. We continue to shout our praise even when we're hemmed in with troubles. Because we know how troubles can develop passionate patience within us. And how that patience in turn forges the tempered steel of virtue, keeping us alert for whatever God will do next. In alert expectancy such as this, we're never left feeling shortchanged. Quite the contrary, we can't round up enough containers to hold everything God generously pours into our lives through the Holy Spirit. Christ arrives right on time to make this happen. He didn't and doesn't wait for us to get ready. He presented himself for this sacrificial death when we were far too weak and rebellious to do anything to get ourselves ready. And even if we hadn't been so weak, we wouldn't have known what to do anyway. We can understand someone dying for a person worth dying for, and we can understand how someone good and noble could inspire us to selfless sacrifice. But God put His love on the line for us by offering His Son in sacrificial death while we were of no use to Him whatsoever. Now that we are set right with God by means of this sacrificial death, the consummate blood sacrifice, there is no longer a question of being at odds with God in any way. If when we were at our worst, we were put on friendly terms with God by the sacrificial death of His Son, now that we're at our best, just think of how our lives will expand and deepen by means of His resurrection life. Now that we have actually received this amazing friendship with God, we are no longer content to simply say it in plodding prose. We sing and shout our praises to God through Jesus, our Messiah. Father, we thank you for your grace and love. We thank you for the truth of your holy scriptures. And God, we give you praise and honor and glory for the beautiful gospel of Jesus. Father, we thank you that through him we have received reconciliation, that we have been offered the free gift of grace. God, that our sins have been washed away 
and that this new resurrection life has come into our hearts as you have poured it out through your Holy Spirit. Father, help us to have faith. Father, help us to have confidence in the truth of what you have done and the fact that you are good and righteous and that you desire to give us the righteousness of Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are and what you have done. It is in your name we pray. Amen.